When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to Geico.com or contact your local agent today. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. GEICO asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, GEICO can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the fighting. It's the 
Welcome to the Fighting Cop Podcast, a very special one. Today we're joined by Steve Tung, who's author of Turf Wars, A History of London Football. We've also got Alex from Bristol here. Hello. Not, all the way not Bristol. quite as uh, accomplished. Steve, that's uh, an in-joke in where uh, we, because of Alex's accent, we pretend that he comes all the way from Bristol because he's yeah. so eager. I'm sure it's not a particularly difficult one to get. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve, you're, you're, uh, you, you wrote this book, A History of, uh, of London Football, Turf Wars, and it's sort of centred around the, the, um, the rivalry uh, between the clubs. Is there many of them in, in our capital city, isn't there? Yes, uh, the original title was actually a very dull title like London Calling, and then fairly soon after starting the research and so on, I realised that one of the most interesting things about football in London was the way that the clubs, although they are all rooted in their own community to some extent these days, uh, that they have from time to time moved around or been involved in proposed mergers, ground shares and so on. Uh, some of them ancient, like Arsenal's move across London, which was must have been even more dramatic at the time than it, than it would be now. Uh, others we've seen more recently, of course, um, Fulham and QPR were going to merge at one stage. Fulham and uh, QPR and Brentford were going to merge. We've seen the ground shares uh, involving Charlton and Wimbledon having to go to Selhurst Park and so on. Uh, so it's been one of the one of the stories of of London football from from day one, partly of course because of the fact that there are so many professional clubs. Um, I, I didn't actually write that London has more professional clubs than any other city in the world because I've been told there are one or two others who have a claim like Buenos Aires, but it depends of course how you how you define actual full-time professionalism yeah. or what sort of level they're playing at. But So I think uh, we can certainly uh, um, say that London is one of the most vibrant, one of the most exciting, and, and I've always found one of the most interesting cities in anywhere for football. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we go into your book, and, and specifically the rivalry between Tottenham and Arsenal, obviously it's a Spurs, Spurs podcast, um, you're, you're, you've been a journalist for 40 years, is that right? Over I'm afraid there? so, yes. Uh, <laughs> and I was horrified to see that uh, the date of my first match, which happened to be at White Hart Lane, uh, was as long ago as 1957. It was I was very young, I should say, when my dad took me to see Spurs play Chelsea. Yeah. So on the basis that you support the, either the first team you go and see or the first team who wins the match, I could have been either a Spurs supporter or a Chelsea supporter because Chelsea did win. It was either 4-2 or 4-3. It was a very exciting game. Um, but typically of the time, uh, it was a sort of Wednesday afternoon. It may even have been just before uh, pre-floodlights at, at White Hart Lane. Um, and so there were about 20,000 there was all. For, for a pretty big London derby. Uh, and my only other real recollection is Les Allen, who went on, of course, as all listeners will know, to become one of the great uh, Spurs double team, was actually playing for Chelsea at that stage uh, and scored a couple of the goals, um, father of Clive, of course, before yeah. he mm. swapped to... Um, uh, they did a, a swap with Chelsea in which Chelsea got a, a player called Johnny Brooks and, and Spurs, I think, yeah. got uh, by far the better of the deal. <laughs> so uh, that was a very long time ago. But even then, um, my dad had made it clear to me that uh, although we were brought up, I was brought up in sort of Walthamstow Way, just about equidistant from Spurs, Arsenal, West Ham, I could have supported any of those teams. But he took me to Leighton Orient. Um, one good Good Friday, 1957, the date etched on my brain when the result was Leighton Orient 1, Leicester City 5. <laughs> and 
on the way home, he said, uh, don't worry, they're at home again tomorrow. <laughs> so I must have thought, hang on, we've just lost 5-1 at home, we've got to come back tomorrow. So we went back tomorrow for another London derby, as it happened, uh, against a very good Fulham team with Johnny Haynes and Jimmy Hill in the second division in those days. And that was Orient nil Fulham 2. So my Orient career has kind of gone on from then, apart from that one miraculous year when they actually got into the top division uh, for one glorious season, 1962-63. Uh, it's been difficult for the O's and it's one of the things I've, I've tried to bring out in the book that it's all very well having all these professional clubs in London but there is a limited number of spectators mm. and supporters and, and money and so the Orients, the Barnets, the Dagenhams I'm afraid to say even the AFC Wimbledons now despite the tremendous strides that they've made they're, they're going to struggle a bit whereas at the other end, Tottenham, Arsenal, Chelsea, as undoubtedly the big three, as they've been for 100 years or more, and now West Ham going to their new stadium, hoping very much to make it a big four. I, I think the trend will be for those four to pull away from everybody else. Is there some level of frustration then at the, the fact that West Ham have been so easily allowed to move into a, a huge stadium just down the road from... Orient, well, yes. Um, Barry Hearn, who was, uh, who was the owner of Orient at the yeah. time, uh, basically did all he could. I think in his heart of hearts, he probably knew that he wasn't actually going to achieve anything much. Uh, he talked about financial compensation. He talked about actually sharing the stadium, which really would have been a disaster because you can't have Orient with the best will in the world playing a stadium of 60,000 people. Mm. Um uh, but it's going to make life very difficult for them. Um, they're struggling on maybe 4,000 people at the moment, um, whether or not they got out of the, out of the bottom division. Um, it's going to be very tough. And, you know, it's been hard enough uh, in an area with Tottenham, West Ham and, of course, Arsenal so close. Uh, not surprisingly, when, when Arsenal moved across the river, it wasn't just Spurs, it was Orient. Uh, Orient were even nearer Tottenham at that time, of course. They were in Clapton, just mm -hmm. up the road. Yeah. Um, they were Clapton Orient and, and they were as outraged as, as Spurs were that Arsenal were moving on to their patch but again they couldn't do anything about it and uh, no you do rather fear for the future I'm afraid Alright so let's, let's, go, let's go into it it's a good segue to go into the Arsenal thing um, it's, it's, look, it's partly the reason why Spurs hold on to this story is, is for me it's actually two reasons one because you've got to be honest we've been below Arsenal for so many years um, and this is something we can hold over them. The fact that they, they were the first franchise football club, they did move uproot their entire fan base, and uh, well, not fan base, but their football club, found a new fan base in North London, which has already had two football clubs as it stood. Um, and uh, it was a kind of, it kind of bastardised the traditions of, of English football. Um, but but as, as a historian, I presume you are as well. It's a fair thing to say, given the fact you've gone through this book now. You know more than most, I'd imagine. I ought to by now. Let's say. <laughs> yeah. So, but how, how did that manifest? Why did Arsenal move from South London uh, to, to, to North London? Well, they were in financial trouble. Um, I, I make the point that actually every London club, at some stage, of the existing clubs has all, always had has had at some stage serious financial problems. But Arsenal's were, were serious, and one of the problems, um, based in Woolwich, was that for a long time they were not only the only London club in the Football League, they were the only Southern club in the Football League. Um, you know, their, their nearest games were at places like Nottingham and Derby. Was this uh, when the North had the only professional game and there was no... no was it yes, I mean, uh, uh, 1888, when the league started, it was entirely uh, North and Midlands. Um, 
Arsenal got in in 1893 into the second division where they were the only southern club. They then got promoted to the first division where they were the only southern club until 1905 when, when Chelsea and Orient the same season came into the second division and therefore played the first ever London derby. Um, so Arsenal, uh, they had these, these tremendous travelling costs. The, the local transport in South London wasn't very good. There was one fairly slow railway line that came out of London and, and went as far as Plumstead where they were based. Um, they didn't have any great rivals around London in terms of attendances and so on in, in that area because Charlton weren't, weren't established at all at that stage. Um, but they were, they were struggling. Uh, they were often being urged to go back into the Southern League where teams like Spurs were still operating. Spurs were very keen to get into the Football League from as early as they could but kept being uh, rejected on, on the vote every year. So Arsenal were struggling. Um, this man, Henry Norris, who was a, a very ambitious, he was a politician as much as he became mayor of Fulham, was heavily involved at Fulham, basically, uh, even suggested that Arsenal should go there. He, he suggested a, a ground share and even a merger. Um, so Arsenal could have ended up playing at Craven Cottage. They looked at places like Battersea. They looked at Haringey. But what he actually said was, imagine a place within 10 minutes of central London where you could see top-class football. And North London was what he settled upon, and, and Highbury was a site that became available. It was actually owned by the church commissioners, um, and he was able to do a deal with them. But it could have been Fulham, it could have been Battersea, it could have been anywhere. Uh, unfortunately for Spurs and indeed for Orient, um, it was uh, Highbury that he, that he chose. Can you tell us a bit more about the furore at the time and what you found in in your research? What was how much of an uproar was there? Well, Spurs were were particularly upset. Uh, Orient protested too, rather like the Olympic Stadium, and they were told, uh, rather like the the present uh, row about the Olympic Stadium, that there was nothing in the rules which pre prevented it. Uh, even some Arsenal supporters, to be fair, were upset. Uh, one of them wrote to the local paper, the Kentish local paper, and said, you used a marvellous word, which everyone will recognise, he said, you cannot franchise a football club. Mm. Woolwich Arsenal must play in Woolwich. So some of their own fans were, I mean, it wouldn't have been easy in, all that easy in those days to get from Plumstead in south-east London to Highbury. Mm. So they must have lost some of their own supporters, but uh, for better or for worse, the move undoubtedly did pay off. For the last game in, in south-east London, they got about 3,000 people although in those days the, the attendances were, were mainly estimated. And by the time they got to Highbury, the first game at Highbury was nearer 20,000. So from day one, it paid off. Um, uh, whether they attracted any supporters from Spurs or not, um, they may well have done from Orient. Um, and the, the move undoubtedly worked. Mm. Had it been... Had it, was that precedent? Was that had that happened before at that scale? Or? Well, yes. When I when I suggested uh, not in the book but on an online piece that Arsenal were the first franchise football club, um, I got Arsenal supporters pointing out that Manchester United, for instance, moved across Manchester. They were like Man City; they were originally in the east of Manchester, mm. and they moved about nine miles um, to the Trafford uh, area. So, in some senses, they had moved across the city. 
Um, the Arsenal supporters tried to make a case for Millwall moving from north of the river to south, although that was barely a mile or so. Millwall started on the Isle of Dogs, yeah. mm. which is partly, I think, the reason why their, their rivalry with West Ham developed very, very early, because it was all Dockers yeah, course, together. Yeah. Um, so they just moved down to New Cross, which they felt was a, a more populous area and, and made a success of that. Um, and then uh, I've heard people try to say, well, Chelsea uh, were founded out of nothing and just moved into a ground at Stamford Bridge because the ground had been built already. And the same thing really happened with Liverpool when, uh, when Everton moved away from Anfield. Uh, and so Liverpool started a club out of nothing. But I think that's a very different argument. Yeah, I think it um, is. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think, as, as I said, the idea of moving from South East London to North London even today would be considered quite dramatic and apart from apart from Wimbledon and Milton Keynes uh, we haven't really seen anything as, as dramatic probably since and the fallout from that continues to this day you know for this season your first time that absolutely yeah AFC and uh, MK Dons are going to be playing in the same division. And a little, a little uh, insight on that one, which I'd, I'd forgotten myself, and it must have had very little publicity at the time. Very early in the 1980s, Ron Nodes, who was quite a sort of football visionary, really, uh, the problem being that nobody really liked many of his visions, but he, I think he really had the idea uh, of a South London United. What he really wanted, I think, was Crystal Palace, Wimbledon, and probably Charlton, by the time they'd gone to Selhurst Park, all merging together as one big South London team team who could challenge the, the North London sides. Uh, that didn't happen, but very early in the 1980s, Ron Nose actually bought Milton Keynes City Football Club, uh, which had previously, the very lowly club, had previously been Bletchley, Bletchley Town. He paid about a pound for the club, clearly with the intention that Wimbledon would go there, because mm. it was obvious, although Wimbledon had done fantastically well. Yeah, yet. I've read that before. It, was, yeah. it wasn't just... It, there had been musings about it in, on a couple of occasions, I think, before before the, the, the bucket eventually got kicked, so to speak. They realised it from early days at Plough Lane that although Wimbledon had done amazingly well to achieve what they did, there was no great long-term future for them. And on, on the gates they had and the ground they had, which is one of the reasons he, he took them to, they went to Selhurst Park and so on. But but that, you say, in nine, early 1980s, it could have been uh, yeah. an even greater row about Wimbledon going to Milton Keynes even then. I think the, the, the problem, firstly, I, do, I like the fact that Arsenal fans don't say, no, we're not a franchise club, but just say, we'll, we'll be one of the first. But the difference right. is, the difference well, is... We're still what, a franchise Yeah, club. but the difference is, is what you're saying, a, a club has to appear from, from somewhere. So if Liverpool have made a club or Chelsea have made a club, a, a club is, is started mm. from... All right, a ground may have already been built or whatever, but there's an organic reason as to why that club would start. Mm. The difference between the Arsenal's and the and the and the Wimbledon's going to Milton is that the the main priority was was commercial priorities, is in to, to that's where they wanted to grow, yeah, and to be able to reach. Well, by the sounds of it, it's like saying, well, this isn't working out for us anymore, so let's just find somewhere else and make it easier. Hmm. Oh yes, yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I, I think. I think it's an interesting thing because most club fans just want a club that represents their community locally. Uh, certainly, this is historically what it was like. I think AFC are a testament to that is that they're not, <clears throat> they didn't want to go to MK Dons with the hope of Premier League football and European football in the future because that was probably what was promised to them as a way of placating. But mm. actually, uh, they just want a football club that's representative of who they are and, and, and from the area that they support. It. And the, the further you go up in the leagues, the less relevant that is. You know, Tottenham have a huge fan base in, in America now. You know, it's such a global sport and so far from 
the foundations of the football club that it's 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 like a, a strange juxtaposition between the owners of the club who are purely focused on success because success means revenue and fans of the club that have become indoctrinated in this idea of success but actually and often forget that there's there's something special about the traditions of which your club is built mm -hmm. and and that never move in regardless of of, of the the promise pr promises would ever be a, a wor worthwhile thing to do i think it's what soothes some fans it certainly soothes me my attitude has changed in the last you know as as i've grown up and 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 learned more about how how the club came about and obviously the whole the whole um, rivalry with arsenal as well it the whole the fact that we are not like them and and didn't become the club we are the way they became the club they are now means that success for me is is going and enjoying my football with a team that I can relate to that that's my success now mm. uh, very much a local club too in Tottenham sense in that although like all the um, virtually every club has had small grounds and then grown up and moved on you know they've always been around that Tottenham marshes Northumberland Park mm. and were one of the the earliest to move into their the we call it the current ground still, can't we, at White Hart Lane. I think Craven Cottage is the only existing London ground which is actually older than White Hart Lane in terms of a, a London club moving in. So, yes, they have been very much a, a, very much a Tottenham club. And I think you see, I think you see the, the, the wave at White Hart Lane, maybe not Tottenham as a club from other rival fans, but I know Fulham is one of my favourite places to go to as an away day, and I know many other t fans of other teams are the same thing, like going to... To Fulham and like coming to Tottenham for that for that tradition traditional element and you look at places like Arsenal for example with, with the Emirates where they've lost uh, they've certainly lost that that area of, of atmosphere and it's it's, um, it's it's I don't think it's any coincidence that people that people lean towards those types of places. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just I'm not going to keep banging on about Arsenal, but it's, it's interesting. <laughs> to me. Um, Henry Norris, you mentioned him briefly. He he wasn't the most stand-up kind of character was he historically remembered no very say very ambitious uh, became mayor of Fulham then became a conservative MP um, was eventually banned from football activities altogether basically for paying bungs um, some of the leading players who they brought uh, to the very successful Arsenal team at the 1930s five five league titles in the 1930s uh, Alex James and others um, not only Alex James got a job in Selfridges, he got a newspaper column and uh, <laughs> a few extra pounds as well, apparently. Um, and eventually Henry Norris was just uh, was bombed out altogether. But he was certainly one of the most colourful, but also the most controversial uh, club chairman or owners in those days. I imagine in those days, most people probably didn't even know who the chairman or the owner of the club was. Mm, yeah. uh, it wasn't the days of, of Ken Bates and Ron Nodes and, and the rest who we became uh, more familiar with. So yes, he went out under something of a cloud. Uh, but, you know, in terms of Arsenal, he'd achieved pretty much what he wanted, although it took until, say, the 1930s. Don't forget, the Football League starts in 1888 and no London club actually wins the title till, till Arsenal in the 1930s. Um, in fact, when Spurs became runners-up in the early 20s, that was the first time any London club had even been in the top two. So there was quite a lot of catching up to do in, mm. in terms of the, uh, the North West and the Midlands clubs. Yeah, amazing. Really interesting. Uh, just, just one, one final thing on the <laughs> Arsenal thing. Would, uh, <laughs> was Henry Norris's anything to do with Arsenal's um, election? And I wouldn't say promotion, but election to the top division. And can you just tell us a bit, bit around that? Yes, story? yes, very much. Um, 
the last year before the First World War, uh, not a great year for London. The bottom two teams in the First Division were Chelsea and Spurs. Spurs were bottom. Arsenal had earlier been relegated and so were already in the Second Division where they finished fifth. So under normal circumstances, once football resumed after the, the end of the First World War, you would have expected Spurs and Chelsea to, it was two up and two down basically in those days, you would have expected Spurs and Chelsea to be relegated and the top two in the second division to come up. Um, in fact, the, um, the Football League was going to be expanded by four clubs. Now, what has happened when it's previously been expanded, uh, and this is the precedent argument that Spurs claimed, was that uh, the bottom clubs had been reprieved. Um, although that was true, uh, it had also involved um, re-elections and what the equivalent in those days of playoff matches, which were called test matches. Yeah. So uh, <coughs> it wasn't true that they'd automatically been reprieved, but it was true, as Tottenham argued, that the bottom club had never gone down. Now, Henry Norris... Uh, as well as being an ambitious uh, man, had friends in high places, uh, as well as, say, becoming mayor and then an MP. Uh, one of the people who signed the lease when he went to Highbury was the Archbishop of Canterbury, no less. Mm. So he did know some people. Uh, he also knew a man called John McKenna, who was the president uh, of Liverpool and of the Football League. And at the crucial meeting where they decided how they would uh, work out the promotion and the relegation for the, for the new seasons, uh, the Liverpool chairman made a speech very much in support of Arsenal, how they'd been such loyal members of the Football League for 25 years or more. Um, uh, Chelsea were reprieved automatically, and I think quite rightly, because there'd been a match-fixing scandal under which Manchester United had avoided uh, finishing in the bottom two, basically by fixing a match with Liverpool, for which a number of players were banned. Um, and so it was agreed on an on a almost unanimous vote that Chelsea should stay in the top division. Mm. So it was then a matter of, of what happened to Spurs and who got promoted. Uh, and having made his speech in favour of Arsenal, um, the Liverpool and Football League chairman called for a vote, uh, basically of all interested clubs, um, and in that vote, Arsenal finished comfortably ahead of Spurs and also comfortably ahead of teams who'd finished above them in the league in third and fourth place, people like Barnsley and Wolves, I think, uh, who found themselves stuck in the second division as well while Arsenal roared back into the first division for the first season after the war. So um, we had Arsenal, Chelsea and Spurs back in the top division. Um, I can feel my blood pressure going Almost now. 100 years ago. <laughs> And the sense of injustice, as I'm sure you feel, uh, was greatly increased. And that adds, that adds to my justification for my hate for Liverpool now that I was talking about the other week. <laughs> yeah. That adds to it now. I'm going to add that to the list. Therefore, as well. Yeah. Um, but so, but we, what we can do, though, because it's just, it, it, Spurs fans are pious, if nothing else, right? Mm. We, 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 because we didn't have to move our football club, uh, the, the ground is built on, on top of the current ground, which is the best case scenario if you have to. Yeah, have absolutely. To that we can we can remain pious and look down our noses at Arsenal because we're better in that respect yeah. traditionally you know built on solid foundations um, but the fact that they got into the top division without not through merit and through nefarious means I would say uh, it, that, that, it, that there's something there you know they haven't been oh, relegated since, and they would have come up eventually probably yeah uh, so. Um, you but know, it's just think, the think, let's take the positives is what I'm saying though. yeah <laughs> yeah all right. <laughs> But it's just the start of it, you know, and just everything around that club and, and how it's moved. Even even when you think about now as it going over to, to the Emirates and the sacrifice that they've made 
in terms of in terms of atmosphere, the price and structure that is now on at, at ground. It's that tradition of looking for on a commercial basis as a priority. The mm-hmm. fact that they don't spend money, and I'm sure you know they do spend money, but you know not to the level that the type of fans that they have these days, you know, so evidently want points towards commercialism being the first port of call again. Well, we know that. Yeah. So that's just levels extra heat. <laughs> Ken Fryer, who was the uh, the long-serving secretary and chief executive there, once told us that had they known quite how difficult it would become and quite how expensive it would become to make the move, they would very seriously have considered staying at Highbury. So what would have happened if they'd stayed at Highbury on crowds of, what, little more than 30,000 uh, and they'd seen West Ham going to a 60,000 stadium, Tottenham building a 60,000 stadium, Chelsea finally developing Stamford Bridge, deciding they just couldn't find anywhere else to move, up against their three main London rivals with basically holding almost twice as many people as they did. Uh, I think Arsene Wenger would have had uh, even more excuses for um, why they were perhaps underachieving and not spending as much money as they might have done. Maybe they move back south again, trying to find yeah. some more space. There'll, there'll be people down there that welcome them. The, yeah. thing, the irony of it is that there would be uproar from Arsenal fans now if they moved down to South London. And, and, you know, anyway, let's, let's move on a little bit. Uh, th- there's an interesting triangle between Tottenham, West Ham and, and, uh, and Arsenal. Um, so huge clubs are so packed together, closely packed together, and, and it happens elsewhere. You know, Liverpool and Everton are literally just a mile away from each other. Dundee and Dundee United mm-hmm. are literally at the end of the street, which is have you, that's an odd yeah. one, isn't it? Have how, you seen how, it? How did I mean how, just how that came about and why they thought they could make it work, and yet they they I mean I think they both struggled to be honest. Yeah. Um, and the likes of us look and say, oh, isn't it ridiculous they should merge? And those two Bristol clubs, why haven't they ever merged? Mm. And they never get a team in the top division. And uh, as we know, um, local rivalries go a bit deeper than that. And mm. uh, and they wouldn't be prepared to, to countenance that any more than the Spurs and they Arsenal. Float, they floated. They have floated. It's been floated the, the, with City and Rovers. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just... By, they don't like each other, uh, do they? By people that don't get it. <laughs> because <laughs> that, that rivalry is... Oh. Ridiculous. Let me tell you briefly about going to interview Ian Holloway, who was a great Bristol Rovers man, as you'll know. Uh, he, he was still on the training ground. His secretary took me up to his office and said, have a seat there. And when he came in, the first thing he said, even before he said hello, was you can't sit in that chair because there were two chairs in the room. One of them was red and one of them was blue. Mm. And it would have meant him sitting in the red chair. Yeah. And he was not going to sit in the red chair. And as I left, I don't know whether he was laying on this on a bit for me or not, but he clearly <laughs> felt it. He, he was berating his secretary because the only pens on his desk were red pens and he wasn't going to write anything in a red pen. <laughs> Incredible. That, that was like Ian it. Holloway of the Bristol Rovers, man. What, what side were you, red or blue? Ooh. My dad was a Bristol Rovers fan, but I, I used to go and watch Bristol City with my mates. I didn't care about either particularly but the majority of my mates are Bristol City but it, I'm neither really but I've uh, I've gone to two of the City Rovers derbies and as much as you think of the the most fierce Tottenham Arsenal game that you can remember and atmosphere wise in, in recent times in the ground and you know it, it's, it's, it's there's an atmosphere to it and there's a nastiness to it and there's a there's an edge to it mm. nothing like, like like that it's nothing like City Rovers really I must admit because it's lowered down and it's and I think it's yeah, but sometimes I think there's more some hard cores maybe I don't know who are, are big on it but it's yeah it's 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 still the, probably the, the most intimidating atmosphere I've been at so there's that, that's kind of you can see where the rivalries come on the pitch and why the boards were, were uh, uh, kind of loggerheads there's actually a good a fairly good relationship between Tottenham and, and well and yes the other thing we should mention uh, that I do um 
go into in the book, early 1970s when the two boards of directors sat down together and discussed uh, building a new ground at Alexandra Park. Um, the Alexandra Park was built as a sort of northern version of the Crystal Palace, not the, the actual yes. old exhibition centre, not the uh, nothing to do with the football club. Mm. Um, and it staged various sporting events. It staged greyhound racing and, and uh, horse racing, sorry. Um, uh, but there was a lot of, it was the early 1970s, obviously, hooliganism was on the rise. Uh, it's not a great area for public transport, no real un underground service there. And basically the local residents were absolutely horrified by the whole idea. Mm -hmm. uh, they said, you know, even when we get 10,000 people at a race meeting at Alexandra Park, it causes chaos. But it was interesting that they should have got as far as actual discussions and, and sitting. There's a photograph, um, I've seen the cutting in, in the Daily Express, I think, had the exclusive story and the directors each sitting on one side of the table looking a little bit sheepishly at the camera. Um, but there, there were serious discussions about a, um, a ground share and of course uh, some of the, uh, the media talk was very much in favour they pointed to as people always do to the Italian clubs who ground share yeah. and so on and said what a sensible move it would be um, but it's, ju it's just one of those things isn't it that hasn't caught on uh, if it if two clubs ever did it you know probably not Bristol as you say but mm. if two local clubs did ever do it in, in England it would be interesting to see whether it did in the longer term catch on but probably not the most obvious one Arsenal and Spurs No Liverpool and Everton have floated the idea haven't they before yeah. just yeah. because they've got this notion of kind of friendly darling, yeah, it is, isn't it? yeah I mean I know a set of um, Everton fans and, and, and they don't have much like for each other no there's a lot no. of disdain and and uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't think that really will, I mean, you can never say into the future, but the whole ground share thing between clubs that are that close, I just don't think it works here on the whole because it, it dilutes everything that is that is about your football club. I just, I don't, I can't see it. So off the pitch, so the rivalries between between fans, um, as Spurs fans, we always think that we're the most hated. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's a sort of badge of pride with it. I, I, uh, amongst London clubs you mean yeah, the, yeah. Of, of, of all the London clubs you know we know that Chelsea love us West Ham love us Arsenal love us yeah but Steve you found you've done some research and found that's not the case well there was a survey done uh, only a couple of years ago um, it actually followed the the rather horrible incident with the Chelsea fans on the Paris Metro you may remember where mm. they wouldn't let a, a black guy get onto the onto yeah. the train with them and YouGov, who are quite a respected political polling organisation, asked London clubs uh, to for their impressions of fans of the city's clubs. In fact, so they said, do you know any Fulham supporters, any Lake Orient supporters, any Spurs supporters? What do you think of them, good, bad, or somewhere in between? And uh, the, those with the most popular rating turned out to be Fulham. Mm. Uh, Arsenal, perhaps a little surprisingly, um, and Brentford, fairly harmless clubs like Brentford, QPR, Orient, Charlton, Crystal Palace. Uh, right down the bottom by quite a long way were Millwall and Chelsea, mm. um, followed by West Ham and only then Spurs. Mm. Um, I mean, if you, those of us who lived through the, the 70s and 80s going to football in London, uh, if you would have said, 
you know, which three clubs are you most wary of? Which three places would you be most wary of going to as an away supporter? I think Millwall, Chelsea, West Ham would probably have been top three. Mm. I don't remember um, Arsenal being involved quite so much at that stage. Um, and it may have been that Spurs perhaps were, that the Spurs hardcore, the, the Spurs firm such as it was... Um, were more likely to to be involved um, yeah. in purely football terms. Uh, Tottenham, the Tottenham team that won the double, which of course got talked about, has always been talked about in in the highest terms, were very much sort of media darlings, um, and that may have had something to do with it earlier. But I wonder whether, if you generally feel that, whether the the hooliganism thing had had something to do with it. I wonder if it, I don't know, this might be way off, and I, I wonder sometimes is, depending on, on particularly polls of, of who's asked and then what their visions of a certain club, of how much the class structure in this country can could come into it. You look at things like, you know, people would think of areas like Fulham uh, and, and nowadays of, of Islington in the, in the type of Islington that, that we have now, you know, but, but then think of perhaps places like Millwall or, 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 West, or West Ham or, yeah. or Tottenham and 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 whether that whether that comes into it at all, what's thrown it is Chelsea being down there with with Millwall probably. But I, I don't know. It just that's it's, it's the first thing that struck me. I don't know how accurate that would be. But. I'm surprised that Millwall featured so, given the fact this was only done two years ago. Yes, that Millwall still featured so so lowly. Yes, um, because it's not like I mean everyone's aware that Millwall and everyone. But that's what I mean. I think there's almost like a. Almost like a prejudgment of the fact of what of what that type of club is about and what the story of that club is, if that makes sense, maybe. Yeah, they've they've worked terribly hard. I mean, there have been a lot of good people working at Millwall who've worked terribly hard to try and offset this reputation. Mm. And then you know, they what happens? They go to Wembley for a cup semi final or something, yeah, and end there. up end up fighting amongst was, themselves. At do you know what? I was there. I was uh, I was um, I was actually in a club Wembley where I'd taken some some clients uh, to to that game that had been nominated that had been nominated as one of the ones that we got in this package thing and we were in uh, just taking these these guys out they weren't uh, Millwall or who were they playing um, Wigan Wigan yeah they were fairly innocuous um, and we were in this bar and uh, these two these two Wigan fans walked past it's Club Wembley obviously where it's mixed and did a West Ham sign uh, well, uh, these, nice. these Millwall guys and this Millwall guy came barging into this bar like proper if you were to do a stereotypical Football hooligan. This this is what this this, this guy looked like. Mm. Grabbed this guy by the by the throat and was like, "I'm gonna cut you first This is in like this is in like a champagne bar, right? And it was it was ridiculous. I don't see anything like it. It was an experience, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that sounds terrifying. Uh, <coughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would have thought that we figured lower. And I wondered. Um, I'm not surprised that Arsenal are so high in that list of, of in terms of most hated because they are quite inoffensive to some degree and if you'd like you say when when Arsenal come to Tottenham it is thick but mainly because of thick the atmosphere is thick mm. mainly because of the behaviour of Tottenham fans um, yes whereas Arsenal fans are pretty very much mostly want to get in the stadium and yeah, get out of they it. hate it don't they? yeah they do absolutely loathe it and I would too because it really is a they called uh, West Ham the chicken run but that, that entrance into well, part the, the part lane now is that you just really do get funnelled in right and, and the police do it as well don't they they make it so that it's quite narrow yeah as well um, so it's quite nasty but West Ham when West Ham come it's, it's worse mm. miles and miles worse and their hatred of Tottenham where, where do you think that maybe that's a bit of a little bit of envy um, yep that's what we like uh, 
<laughs> well, fair <laughs> enough. Based on the based on the records, um, you know, West Ham have still not not won a league title, um, and of course the it's all been fanned presumably a little bit by the the I mean, you'd have your own views about Tottenham's Tottenham's uh, approach and and. Uh, role in the whole Olympic Stadium thing which yeah. seemed a little bit odd to me as an outsider um, but that presumably fanned a little bit by that um, and again I think probably in, in that case a, a bit of a throwback to the, the hooligan years yeah. when I would have I would have I must have seen a few West Ham Tottenham games in those days and um, would have again and would have been a bit more wary in those days I think than than the sort of uh, West Ham Arsenal or, or even even perhaps Tottenham Arsenal in those days Mm. It's a strange one though, because I have a, a weird kind of begrudging, not like for West Ham, but a respect because because of the type of club that they are, that they're organic and then and they're they're natural, and their their fans seem to think about their club and what they hold dear, the same things that I hold dear about Tottenham. I think that's I think that's because we've had no choice. Yeah, it's that you have to hold on to these stuff if you're not successful, and that's my fear of becoming a successful football that's club, true, a truly man. successful football club, is that the success becomes all encompassing and you know you can forgive your traditions because look at all this great football we get to look at mm. but uh, West Ham haven't, and Spurs haven't had that luxury no. um, and do you know what I don't think I would change it now. no I, 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 and that's changed for me as, as, as I was saying earlier that's that's the biggest thing that's changed for me with, with football in general is that like I said my success for me now is like I said the team that we had last year of, of kids that we can relate to actually look like they're that are playing for the shirt and the rest of it that's that's my idea of, of, of real success now we get a couple of pots and trophies on the top of that great yeah absolutely um, you, you as a uh, and, and are Steve a journalist um, and, and you've covered football for, for 40 years is that right or I'm afraid you... it is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrifying he's nailing it this whole 40 years thing isn't he <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're really pained expression on your face there, Steve. Sorry. that's because you've noticed 40, you mentioned 40 odd years it seems a long time probably because point. it is a long time yes <laughs> Um, and are you, the, the change in football over those because it, it escalated very quickly after the formation of the Premier League but I, I'm wondering if you can if people look back at it with rose tinted goggles on or glasses on and, and and I long for a time where atmosphere is, uh, atmospheres were as raucous as they once were and become quite insipid places football grounds now but was it better then or? Yeah, I mean the the very best time of all was probably the sixties. Um, as a, a fascinating look at the, just the number of goals scored, the the, the highest average and numbers were, were right at the start of the nineteen sixties. I mean, teams could score uh, could concede a hundred goals and still not be relegated because <laughs> they'd scored ninety eight or something. Um, uh, and that in 10 years that disappeared completely until within 10 years it was the lowest goal scoring rate ever by the start of the 70s when Arsenal and Liverpool and Leeds were beginning to dominate things and and play basically starting from the back and, and putting the emphasis on defence and so on and they were setting these ridiculous defensive records uh, the whole thing did change then um, the the 1970s the early 1970s were a fairly depressing time in terms of the actual football played with when Leeds were um, were just beginning their their rise um, to prominence um, the 60s seemed to have a sort of carefree air about them um, 
the hooliganism wasn't wasn't prevalent. I mean, I I remember the very early 1960s, Orient's famous season in uh, in the top division. I went as a supporter to all the London away games, and you would stand uh, at Arsenal. We stood on the north bank at West Ham. We stood on the north bank. Just by the end of that season, this I'm talking now, by the spring of 1963, you went and stood on the north bank at West Ham as an away supporter and you were looking over your shoulder just a little bit. Mm. But I, I remember at, um, that was the first year that I ever heard a group of supporters, I think it was an Everton supporter, at White Hart Lane actually that, that year I went to see. And the first time I'd ever seen a big group of supporters just standing together and actually chanting. They were just chanting that sort of Everton clap, 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 mm. which which most teams eventually took up. That's the first time I ever remember that kind of collective. Previously, when I went to away games with Orient before then, you just stood anywhere. And if you saw a few blue and white scarves, as were their colours in those days, you might have gone to stand somewhere near there. But you, a, a, you didn't feel in any way unsafe. And B, there was no suggestion that all the away supporters stood together or anything like that. So that that really started in the the early 60s when there were the first examples of, um, I'm afraid it was Millwall supporters again, um, you would hear of of crowd trouble for the first time, um, which began to, to make things a bit tenser as we went into the 70s. The 70s became a little bit bleak, certainly early on. Um, attendances dropped off a bit and then of course in the 80s once we got the the tragedies and the beginnings of all-seater stadiums and around about sort of 85, 86 and so on uh, it was actually quite depressing to, to go anywhere really um, and, and, and then once we had the Taylor report and, and actual all-seater grounds being instigated then you had the problem of atmosphere um, and very restricted attendances. I mean, the, the um, very early 90s, uh, very low capacities at, at Arsenal, West Ham, Tottenham, Chelsea, mm. just because of the, the transformation. Mm. So you got smaller smaller crowds and so on. Um, so it was just, it was fortunate really that on the back of, you know, the 1990 World Cup and Gaza's tears and so on, um, football suddenly became a bit more a bit more fashionable, but also a bit more attractive again. Um, my, my, my one feeling about, about Sky was that it was actually a good thing that it was um, uh, Sky and not, say, ITV who won that first contract, um, largely, of course, because of Tottenham's influence and, and Alan Sugar um, having the, what turned out to be the crucial vote, really, because of his, his very much vested interest, let's be honest, mm. uh, that, that enabled them to get the two-thirds majority for Sky to, uh, to win the contract. Um, which meant that, you know, uh, plenty of people in those days, as we know, just didn't have access to Sky. Uh, even now, they only get a million or two million for their very biggest matches, whereas, you know, the, the dullest England international on ITV will draw in five million people or so on. That what I'm saying is that if, if all these Premier League matches every season had all been available on ITV, for instance, I think it would have had a serious effect on attendances and, and the whole thing might not have taken off on, in the same way. Um, so yes, it's it's all changed dramatically. Uh, what's been quite amusing is uh, suddenly to realise how fashionable it has become again. Um, you know, in in the, the late nineteen eighties, if I went to a party or something and someone said, "What do you do?" I, I'd say, "Well, I'm a sports journalist. You know, yeah. I do uh, cricket and tennis and a bit of uh, football." <laughs> um, whereas I, I remember the thing about the nineteen ninety World Cup. I always remember. 
um, going up to, to pick up my little girl from school and the very elderly female um, head, the headmistress of the school who had never shown any interest whatsoever in sport, let alone football, came rushing over to me and said, oh, Mr Tongue, wasn't it sad? Poor Gascoigne and England, didn't they do well? That was, of course, after thousands of people had, had gathered at Luton Airport to welcome England back for, you know, for coming fourth in the World Cup. Uh, that was a, a clearly, as everyone has said, it is perfectly true. That was a, a real transformation, and and Sky uh, were able to to pick up on it. And yeah, and the most it's of it. such a small space of time, really, eighteen months or so before mm. from from that Gaza moment until really the Premier League was. I mean, it was sure it was probably being half considered anyway, way before yes. then. But the wheels were actually in motion, ready for that ninety-two. You know, kick off. The time was right. I mean, they were, remember you. They were talking about a lot of talk about a British league and a super. I mean, Irving Scholar at Spurs was one of the big movers. You know, the big five clubs were yeah. Arsenal, Spurs, Everton, Liverpool, and Manchester United. They they were the the ones who were pushing most because they felt that uh, it was quite wrong that everything financially should be divided up among ninety two clubs. Um, the bigger clubs wanted more of the spoils and, mm. and it could have gone any way uh, you know in Europe they finally fixed it by, by um, bringing in Champions League to ensure that the big clubs would get more games but there was you know there was serious talk of a British league or uh, some sort of super league a breakaway league as it was the uh, the FA people forget that it was actually the Football Association Premier League the FA was supposed to be yeah, running it, was, it yeah. and then somehow completely lost control of it and uh, and allowed basically the clubs and the Premier League themselves to take over and I suppose with the first, I mean we, we talked about being pious and there's some things that we, 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 we have to be we have to hold our hands up to and Spurs being the first team to float on the stock stock market scholar was a very forward thinking man and a lot of people get quite angry when talking about his period at Tottenham mm. he did a lot of bad stuff certainly from a match day going Absolutely. fan point of view but um, you know we did float and that opened the floodgates really for for great, great fan, I should say. I mean, I, I used to get on very well with him because he was very keen on, on LBC where, where I worked. And uh, I once went to his office to interview him. And as you walked in, you could hardly get in the door for the piles of newspapers, which his poor secretary used to have to go through every day and, and literally cut out every reference to uh, to Tottenham mm. uh, for him. He was he was a genuine supporter. And, and although, as you say, he upset a few people, he, I, I would say he had the best interests of, of the club at heart. I think so too. I mean, Martin Cloak. We talked about this a lot, and you know, he, there is no greater proponent for the rights of fans than Martin. And even he understood that Scholar's uh, heart was in the right place. It was just that it kind of butted against what I think lots of fans wanted. You know, the demolishment of the of, of the East Stand, the shelf, yeah. um, uh, the floating on the socket, so the change, the move away from club membership to corporation client reference numbers and all the rest of it he was I probably mean, ahead of his time to be fair no he was, he was and this is this is the point I think you know unfortunately there's going to be an element of, of football now and we've seen with the TV deal this year of how it's growing ever still and the first transfer window going through billion pounds being spent change, changes like this um, will, will come changes like you know another Super League or a European Super League that they've talked about before or even small changes like Celtic and Rangers coming down into the English league and things like that. I, I think there's a part of it that these things will just will just happen, of whether course. it's five minutes time or five think, years time. Or. I think you accept that these things happen, change mm. happens. It's just whether or not it's how much of it you're allowed to pass without fight. Yeah, and if you don't fight ever, then then. then and the Olympic Stadium was a perfect example of that of how 
you know, the, there was a huge amount of people, especially from the Tottenham side of it, that you know, that was that was a bridge too far. For yeah, I mean, they, they there were people, Spurs fans, that were happy to go to Stratford. Yeah, there was. And and if Spurs, if Daniel Levy and, and, and Spurs wanted that to happen, then it, no matter how big the protests, it would have happened. But but there has to be some. You're right. There has to be some fight to to been seen to be heard. Otherwise, what's the point? Uh, this has been fun, fascinating. It has. I could sit and honestly, I could talk about this all day. I love this stuff. Um, so we, you can find your book everywhere. I said Turf Wars: A History of London Football. Yes, most books seem to be sold online rather than in bookshops these days. But yeah. um, any any um, any Google of tongue, which is um, a rather odd name, but the only one I've got, um, <laughs> and Turf Wars, you'll um, you'll find how you can get it. And well, it looks it looks fantastic as well. What well, you say, judge a book by its cover. But oh, yeah. if you're going to, this is the one to judge on because it looks fantastic. I had nothing to do with it, but it does have a nice <laughs> picture of Jimmy Greaves on the front. Anyway, it does, it does indeed. And uh, and uh, that's uh, Bobby Moore. Yeah, Bobby Moore, the one that wanted to come to Tottenham. There you go. West Ham. I don't know if that's true. That's no, it's very true. He was desperate to get away from West Ham on on many occasions. He would have loved to have gone to Derby with uh, with Brian Clough. Yeah. Uh, I think Arsenal were having a sniff as well. He was, of course, he was huge friends with Greavesy, and so he would have loved to have gone there. there. But Redknapp talks about it in his book as well. Ended up at, at Fulham briefly instead. Yeah. I never actually. One of the things I never go to West Ham fans about is just yeah. almost like that. Too much. Yeah, it's nice just to poke though, just a little, just a little poke. But there's so much to be able to poke at with West Ham. It's just yeah. not that. I leave, I leave that. I generally okay. give that a wide berth. We'll, we'll dedicate another podcast to that one, maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Steve, it's been fascinating. And uh, what's your Twitter in case someone wants to follow? At Steve Tongue, very unoriginally. Oh, there you go. That's easy. <laughs> All right. Uh, this has been another special of the Fighting Cock podcast. We'll be back with you on Monday. This is coming out on a Sunday. Cock, cock, cock. Podcast Network. When I clock out of the hospital at 6 p.m., I'm not done for the night. That's when Gamer Nurse 40 clocks in and she's got orcs to slay. Sure, I'm playing a 13 year old in Scranton, but he's a level 53 mage with a filthy mouth. So I need to stay on top of my game. What'd you call me? That's when I crack open a Heineken 00. Zero alcohol, but just as refreshing. So I can focus on stealing his gold before his mom tells him it's bedtime. Take that, kids. Heineken 00. 0.0% alcohol. Now you can. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy responsibly. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 
Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.